0: The creator of the universe has given each one of his children a calling, a wonderful calling for their lives. The way he goes about it, however, will make no sense to the world around us. That is what is so amazing and so wonderful about it. And that calling is a wonder for the whole world to see. Howdy, disciples, and welcome to the Creator's Calling Podcast. My name is Kurt Matson, and I'm the host of the show. Now, in this episode, we're going to continue in what we began last time. We're doing a series here of what it means to have a calling on our lives. Now, specifically, a biblical calling. And as we begin, let's pray. Lord, we come before you right now in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Lord, we pray that your word would speak to our hearts. We ask, Lord, that as we explore this idea of your calling in our lives, that we would understand it more fully, that you would draw us close, and that we would walk with you in even a stronger way at the end of this podcast than where we are right now. Lord, you know exactly what we need to hear to fulfill the calling, to build us up more in the calling that you have for us. And we pray that you would minister those things to every man, every woman, everybody who listens to this podcast. Minister, Lord. We look forward to what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we get started, we're going to have a quick review of what we looked at in the last podcast. Now, if you haven't looked uh, to at the first podcast or listened to it, then I'm going to recommend that you go back and give it a listen so that you get the fullness of what we're talking about here. We're going to hit the high points briefly just to kind of give you an outline, but there's so much that the Lord has for you. Now, the first thing we looked at last time, was that a calling cannot come from the universe or out of randomness. A calling cannot come from the universe or out of randomness. Remember this, disciples. The universe is governed by laws, and it's a system, and it can't change direction moment by moment. The universe isn't a person that has a will, And it says, oh, I'm hearing from Billy. I'm going to do this. Oh, I'm hearing from... It doesn't do that. It doesn't change course. It doesn't react according to our requests. Second thing we looked at is this. that The natural world, the universe, is going from a state of order to disorder. That's the second law of thermodynamics. We call it entropy. And remember, we looked at it last time. The only way anything improves is by the insertion of intelligence from outside itself. Remember that, disciples, the only way anything improves in this universe, which is going from order to disorder, is by the insertion of intelligence from outside itself. Now, for the evolutionists, of course, they rely on the idea of macroevolution and of lots of different changes Do you know there's only three scientifically provable types of mutations, which, of course, these changes are what the evolution looks at, that one creature mutates all the time. There's three scientifically provable types of mutation. There's neutral, there's harmful, and there's fatal. That's all there is. Neutral, harmful, and fatal that alone destroys the idea that man evolved from random happenstance now we saw also last time that there cannot be a calling without a creator randomness cannot cause calling it cannot give purpose there must be a creator and that creator must have the ability it must have the desire And he must have the love to want to create us and the desire to want to interact with us. Those are the requirements if we're going to have a calling. Anytime we hear anybody talking about a calling and they leave the God of the Bible out of it, that's not a calling. That's wishful thinking. You see, only the God of the Bible fills the requirements. Their creator must have the ability ability, the desire, and the love to create us. And he must want and desire to interact with us as well. Then next, we looked at what a calling is not. Remember this, disciples, a calling is not about numbers. That's a construct from the world. And the church has bought into this hook, line, and sinker. Your calling is about one thing. It's about faithfulness to what God has called you to do. Zechariah 4.10, the first part of it says this, For who dares make light of small things? Every one of our callings begins small, and it will grow as the Lord desires and as we work the ground He's given us. It's wonderful. The Lord desires it, and then we work the ground He gives us. Now, if right now we can say, Oh, man. Everything is so small. Then that can be a source of discouragement. But remember, disciples, the Lord's going to grow it. You work the ground. You be faithful. It's a small thing. Don't make light of it. Rejoice in it. You get to participate with God with what he's doing in the world right now. That in itself is a wonder. God wants to work with you. He wants to work with me. I love that. The second thing we looked at is this, is that calling is not about entertainment or self-aggrandizement, but it's about engagement. Calling is not about entertainment or self-aggrandizement, but it's about engagement. See, the world's methods entertain, but they rarely engage. When they do engage, here's what they engage. They engage in things that will feed the flesh, They engage in things that will feed pride. They engage in things that will feed self. See, these are the things that they engage with, among many other things. And they're things that will always go against the truth of Scripture. They can engage, but they're going to feed the wrong things. They're going to feed the man, the woman. They're not going to feed the things of the Spirit. For you and I, here's the call. We must engage the heart and the mind through what we create to point those we engage with to the truth. See, this is engagement with and through the Holy Spirit. That's our call. Engagement with and through the Holy Spirit. We then began to look at, now this is our jumping off point. We're going to be right here in this text again on this episode, and we began to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. And that's where we began this exploration. Now, we got through less than half a verse, but that tells you how much the Lord has for us. Remember, we looked at the word consider, and we saw what that meant. We looked at the word calling, with was an invitation to a banquet, and we looked at what that meant. So, we looked at all of that in the last episode in depth. And now, with all that in view, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. That's what we're going to explore today. And listen to what Paul writes here to the Corinthian church. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now, remember the context that Paul is speaking to here. He'd been about 18 months at the Corinthian church at one time, and he'd been teaching, and he's writing this letter to correct some things that had been going on in the church. And remember, we saw that Corinth had been compared to LA, New York, and Las Vegas all rolled up into one. Now, what did they value? What are the things that they looked up to? What are the things that had influence on them. The Corinthian church loved impressive public speakers. They loved impressive performers. They loved status. They loved greed. And they loved the right to do whatever they wanted, no matter how it affected anybody else. You can see the parallels to our society right now. It was just like our culture. And you see, the Corinthian church was divided by the worldly ways of looking at things. Therefore, it was constantly behaving like the world, not being separate from it. In Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul would later write to this same church, Therefore, go out from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. See, Paul's reminding them later from our text here that you can't fall into the same habits of looking to the world. You can't fall into the same habits of living like the world does. And he quotes there. This is Isaiah 52.11 that he's quoting. And you know, the same thing is true for you and I. That we have to be different. And then Paul, we go to our text, and Paul begins to tell them some things. And it is most interesting because Paul starts looking at the people that the Corinthian church would consider prime candidates for a calling, especially from God. You see, these are the best qualified. Surely they must be the ones. These are the most eloquent. These are the most talented. These are the most educated, all of that, surely that's who you would pick for a calling from God? But notice what he says here. He says, after first consider your calling, he says, not many. Not many. And then he says, of you. Now that little phrase, not many, is repeated three times in our passage. That's important. We'll get to that in a moment. There's two things here. What Paul is doing is that within the church, Paul is telling the Corinthian church, you look around at the composition of the the fellowship that you're in. What kind of people are in your church? See, he didn't say not any. He said not many of these types of people. Look at the kind of people that are in your fellowship. You see, the second thing he says, the point here is that God can use anyone. But it's harder for some people to come to know him than others because they don't see a need for Christ. He's going to give us the reasons for that in a moment. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. It's a fascinating chapter. Uh, Peter is at the house of a Gentile named Cornelius. Cornelius was a God-fearer. Now, these were people who had not taken up all of the Jewish rituals, but they believed in the God of the Old Testament. He had been given a vision. And listen to what the Lord writes here. He says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no uh, partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. See, Peter had just been told by the Lord in a vision that from God's perspective, anyone could have their sins forgiven. In Christ, anyone. Anyone who would come to him and does what is right. He shows no partiality. And when he talks about there, uh, he does what is right, doing what's right there, it's a reference to receiving Christ as Savior there in context. Now, the same thing holds true for the calling of God. He has a calling for every one that comes to him through Christ. Every one of his children. And you're only a child of God in Christ. There's another very important component to this, disciples, and that is this. There's only one way that a calling has any eternal value. And that as if it's in Christ. A couple of chapters ahead in this same letter, Paul is going to write to this church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11-13. through 13. For no one can lay a foundation other than which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of of work each one has done. See, if the foundation is Christ, you're building on a foundation of gold, silver, precious stones. But you can also build on wood, hay, and stubble. That's building on the ways of the world. And you see, there's going to be a day when it says, uh, will be manifest, for the day we'll disclose it. That's the day when we stand before the Lord. If you're a believer, you don't stand before the Lord in terms of judgment, heaven, or hell. It's the Bema seat. And that is a rewards judgment. But our works will be tested. Our works will be tested. What's this done for the Lord Or will it be burned up? You see, your work has eternal consequence. People outside of Christ can find all kinds of good things, all kinds of good ways to use their talents and abilities to make the world better. But they're built on a foundation of wood, hay, or straw outside of Christ. Biblical calling always has eternal implications. Human effort cannot. Biblical calling always has eternal implications. Human effort cannot. That's the big difference between the two. You see, God will use any man, he will use any woman, who chooses to come into relationship with him. Now, as we continue in our verse here, what we're going to see is there are barriers for some that make it more difficult to come into that relationship and then get that calling that has eternal ramifications. Eternal implications. There are barriers. Now, it's interesting. There's three things he's going to list here. Remember we saw earlier that uh, God says... Not many, three times. Three is the number of resurrection. That's not insignificant here. You see, if we get rid of these three stumbling blocks, then you come to Christ, and then that calling, the salvation is secured, and that calling becomes an entirely different thing. It becomes something of eternal consequence. Now, the three things he lists here are this. Worldly wisdom, the powerful, and privileged birth. Three things that can be stumbling blocks, some who are wise according to worldly standards is the first one then some that were powerful and then of noble birth and remember disciples he says not many three times so he excludes nobody but the stumbling blocks make it more difficult let's look at each one of these first of all he says those are, that big stumbling block number one is being wise according to worldly standards. This word wise here in the Greek is an extremely interesting word. And when you know the meaning of it, you'll see it everywhere. Here's what the word means. It doesn't mean brilliance. It doesn't mean being highly educated. What it does mean is to be skilled with what you do know. I'm going to repeat that. It doesn't mean that you're brilliant. It doesn't mean that you have to be highly educated. But what it does mean is that you have a skill with what you do know. It means that you are good at articulating and persuading people with the knowledge that you have. And it doesn't matter if that knowledge is true or not. You see, the wise are people who can say the right things the right way and make it sound so good. And people are persuaded by that. How many people do you see that get up and say things and it sounds really good unless you start to really critically think about it? Because what they're doing is they're doing exactly what this word means. They're articulating what they know whether it's true or not. Now, the second part of this is that Paul gets more specific here. He says, you'll notice, it's by worldly standards. So here's the big picture here. This is what, if you put those things together, we're talking about. It says they take the world's thinking and they persuade with that thinking. Now, think about it in terms of the Corinthian church here. Uh, The Corinthian church was familiar with Greek and Roman philosophers and their way of looking at things. You can remember Paul going up on Mars Hills, and what do they do all day up in Mars Hill? They talked about the latest ideas all the time. You see, and they had all of this kind of going as banter back and forth within the society. The Corinthian church was very familiar with all of this. And see, these, the Greeks, the Romans, of course, the Rome in general, they used the thinking of these philosophers for the wisdom to govern their lives and to make decisions with. These people were educated in rhetoric so they could articulate and persuade people with their argumentation. They could be really persuasive. So for the Corinthian church, their biblical acumen was more important than ever. To be able to discern, is this true? Is this accurate? Is this God's wisdom, which is really the only biblical, that's the only wisdom that there is. It's God's wisdom. Or not. Now, the same thing holds true for you and I. There's a way that we can live our lives according to the experts. There's a way we can live our lives according to the educated man's standards and to the principles of other spirituality anything that's outside of biblical wisdom there's a way to do that and you know you see them on television shows all the time you hear podcasts all the time and they talk about it and oh it just sounds so wonderful but it's outside what real wisdom is and if you know your word well enough if you know what the bible says well enough it jumps out at you because the holy spirit quickens that says nope that's a lie You know, I'll never forget, this has been, oh, I'm going to say about two years ago. Excuse me. I was listening to a, uh, it was supposed to be a Christian podcast. And they're talking about Buddhism. And this guy's extolling the wisdom of Buddhism. And then he says, you know, you get your wisdom where you can, right? And I went, eh, wrong. You see, true wisdom, the only wisdom in this world is biblical wisdom. That's what we must have to guide our lives. Our pressure constantly, and it's infiltrating the church all over. The pressure is to follow the world's wisdom. And that can cause people from making commitment to Jesus. Um, ten maybe twelve years ago, we were at an art show uh, up uh, out of state here, and you Wendy know, and we're walking through, looking at everything, and I come upon a sculpture. And of course, me being a sculptor, you know, pfft, I'm always looking that way. And so here is a piece. It's a, a figurative piece, and it's got a male figure with a hammer in one hand, and it's all raised up. And he's got a chisel, and the figure goes down about, oh, I don't know, waist high or so, and it turns into a just a square block. And down into that block, there's a chisel, and he's got that hammer reared up, and he's getting ready to hit that thing, hit that chisel. You know what the title of the piece was? Self-Made Man. Now, this is what's so interesting about that. I thought, oh, boy, you know, this is, that's exactly what the world loves. The world loves that story. And this is what's fascinating to me. That piece, the artist that did it ended up doing, I believe, 12 different editions and large editions. So uh, if you're not familiar with sculpture, they're limited edition. Uh, 30 is normal. I do a lot less, but 30 is normal. This was doing like 100, and each one got different. It started off with about 30, and then it kind of varied all over. But she did 12 different sizes of the very same thing. It was so popular. That tells you how this mindset, how the world loves the idea of the self-made man. And so what happens? They're filled with the language that tells you that men and women, you're good enough. You are enough. You are all that you need. See, it needs to be a qualifier in that. In Christ, you are enough. In Christ, you have all that you need because of him. You see, we need to be Christ-made men, Christ-made women. Then we're good enough, and it's because of him and his spirit that's in us. Man loves the appeal to their pride. The truth is, though, that we're weak. Everybody knows that deep inside. They know that they're weak. That's why fear is so effective. And have we ever seen how effective fear is in this last year, year and a half? You know what Paul writes? This is Second Corinthians 11.30. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. That is exactly the opposite of the world's wisdom. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10 says this, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, Paul understood more than a lot of us that that weakness is the opportunity that God uses to show his strength. We're strong because of him. The Corinthian church, again, this is from Second Corinthians, that passage. See, they need to be reminded of that. The, issue, the issues were persisting in the church later in 2 Corinthians. They're persisting in the church, and he had to be reminded. This is what their perspective needs to be. In the world of the arts, for all of us, the worldly standards are everywhere. For you and I, though, we must keep our focus on what Scripture teaches and not man. Man's wisdom includes the latest theories and ideas. Because if it's new, it's got to be better, right? How many aberrant things have come into the church because it's new? What does Scripture say? Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask. Did you hear that? Ask. For the ancient paths, where the good way is, walk in it and find rest for your souls. Here's the kicker, but they said, we will not walk in it. That's from Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Right now, the world is saying, we will not walk in it. We know better. The Lord says to us, stand by the roads and look, be watchful, ask for the ancient paths. Why? It's where the good way is. And then he says, walk in it. If we will do that, ask for the ancient paths, look for them, it's the good way, and then live in what Scripture says. What happens? We find rest for our souls. Do you think the world needs rest for their souls? Do you think the men and women, after coming through everything that's been going on, needs rest for their souls? Of course they do. Right there, Jeremiah 6.16 tells us exactly what to do. When you get to that place, you have a time of unrest. Go to this verse. Stand by the roads. Look. Ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is. Walk in it. You see, man in his sin, man and sin, it doesn't change. So we have our first stumbling block. That stumbling block is being wise according to worldly standards. Then we come to our second stumbling block. The second stumbling block here at Paul lists is not many were. Powerful, not many in the church, not many who come to Christ, are powerful. Here's what that word means. It means quite literally it's a reference to people who are in authority or have authority over others. Now, this could refer to government positions. it could refer to being in the business world. It was a somebody who had authority over other people, in other words, they had power over them to rule their lives. And with that power, see, when somebody's in that position, they come to the conclusion because of their pride that they see no need for God. And that's because they're a God in their own eyes. You see, they've accomplished a lot. People are obeying everything. They've got to do what they're told. See, they look at themselves and say, I'm a self-made man. I created all of this. It's sort of like Nebuchadnezzar. When he walks around and says, look at all that I've done. What did God do? He says, uh, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to deal with that pride thing right now. Boom. He goes out and he starts eating grass, grows his hair along, gets the long fingernails, all of that. You can read about that in the book of Daniel. Remember what Satan wants. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 14 says this, I will ascend the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That's what Satan wants. You see that stumbling block? Boy, he's good at using that in people's lives to keep them from Christ and to keep them from the calling that will have eternal implications. Now, for you and I, we have a challenge in this too because one of the greatest temptations that can happen in our calling comes when we have more and more success. Success brings influence. And then we have to ask, how are we going to use it? Will we make a choice to help another in our field by opening a door for them? You know, we might have an opportunity to recommend somebody to a show or to a performance or to a play to be in that because they're so good at what they do. Perhaps there's a publisher that we know, and this friend, this person that we have come to know, has written something that would be perfect. You see, in those moments, we have a little power. And we have to ask ourselves, how am I going to use this little power that God has given me? Because the world will tell us, use any power you have for your own advantage and disregard anybody else. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says this, Do nothing, no, nothing in the Greek means nothing, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Now there is the Spirit's counsel for you and I living in the arts In a very worldly type of environment there's going to be opportunity to look out for self or to look out for others see we're to take others into account and to put them forward when it's to their benefit and we're to do it without hesitation that could be one of the most difficult things that any of us do is to do that without hesitation because we begin to think oh man you know I need to take every opportunity I need to look out for number one. And of course, we have to manage our careers. But we can never be fearful about putting someone else forward. Especially when we know that opportunity is perfect for them. And the Lord just says, go for it. This is one of the most divergent behaviors you can undertake in the world. As you well know, the arts, any of them, is a place of endless self-promotion. Endless. And there's always a place for promotion. However, it becomes a trap. And that trap can consume us. You see, we can begin to look at everything, every action, every thought. And it's about promoting ourselves. And even when we look at helping somebody else, we'll say, man, this is going to make me look so good. Oh, what a... What a deceptive trap that is. There's going to be times when an opportunity is better for somebody else than for you. And it's at that moment that you choose the path of Christ or you can choose the path of this world. There's going to be a moment when the Lord puts somebody on your heart for an opportunity and says, you put them forward. This is not for you where we just say, okay, and we trust, we walk in faith. You see, when you take the Jesus path, you're pleasing him. When our motives are only for his glory and for his best, you'll end up being elevated. This is Luke chapter 14, verses uh, 10 and 11. Jesus says here, but when you were invited, he's speaking of being invited to a wedding feast. When you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in his presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself. Will be exalted. I love this passage, disciples. You see, true humility, if that's what we really desire, then you must act in accordance with that humility. No thinking, man, it's going to look good for me. It's selfless behavior to please your Lord. And then we come to our third and final stumbling block, and you'll notice it's noble birth. Now, we could translate that Greek here, blue bloods. Literally, it means the well-born. And it's these people who were born into aristocracy in that particular culture. They're people who were born into wealth. They're people who have connections. And they're people who have notoriety. You see, these are the things that the Corinthian church's world found extremely important. Same thing today. See, these people had doors open that nothing else would. It's very interesting, there was a Queen of England, and I can't remember which one, but she once made this quote, and she said, I was saved by an M. And she was referring to this verse right here, and to this part of the verse. She was saved by an M, because it didn't say, not many. You see, when we're born into noble birth, there can be a sense of entitlement. You're born into the right family. Think, here in America, you know, you've got the Kennedys, the Bushes, the Rockefellers, Those types of people. And it's easy to think with that kind of upper class birth that you're above the law and that you're better than everybody else. It's easy to think that your name has such import and such value that it doesn't matter what kind of a person you are or how you live. You see, that is arrogance and it's a great danger to the flesh. And Satan loves to exploit that in men and women. That M makes all the difference. Now you remember earlier in the show, we looked at a a passage, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. And here's the complete verse. It says, For who dares make light of small beginnings? These seven eyes will joyfully look on the tin tablet in Zerubbabel's hands. These are the eyes of the Lord, which constantly range across the whole world. Look at everything we're told here. This is a picture of what the Lord is doing right now. Remember the number seven is the number of completeness or perfection in in Scripture. He says, God never ceases to see everything in the world, materially, spiritually. He sees it perfectly. He sees it completely. And his eye is ranging across the entire earth, looking, seeking, and seeing. He sees your softness and your desire to carry out his calling in the world. Your things will start small, just like a seed planted in the ground, but it will grow when it's watered by the Spirit in you. 1 Corinthians 3.7 so neither the one who plants, counts for anything, nor the one who waters, but God who causes the growth. 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9 says this, For the eye of the Lord run to and fro throughout the entire earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Now in that passage from 2 Chronicles 16, King Asa had turned to Syria to get him out of trouble. Syria was turning was like turning to man's wisdom it was he was saying I'm gonna reject God here I'm going right over here to man's wisdom man's power our verse 2 Corinthians 16 9 that's God's reply to him you See God is ready willing and watching to come to your help Asa said no, I'm gonna go do this my own way and there's one thing I find so wonderful about the Zechariah 4.10 passage. You'll notice this is these seven eyes will joyfully look. God is joyfully looking to come to your aid. God is joyfully looking to give you all you need. He's joyfully looking to give you his strong support as you live to carry out his calling in the world. Paul has shown us how different God's call is from what the world thinks. Next time, we're going to contrast that with some other things, and the contrast becomes even more stark. It's just so cool, disciples. Well, we made it through the first verse of our passage. We should applaud. Now, the more we look at this, the more it's a wonder. I can't wait for our next episode. Thank you so much for joining me here. Please, if this has ministered to you, share this podcast with other people, with others so that they can be encouraged and strengthened by Jesus and his word. The music in the beginning at the end are by, my, by Chris Matson, my brother. And you can follow him on Instagram and on YouTube at Chris Matson Worship. If you don't already, you can follow me on Instagram and on Gab at The Creator's Calling. And let me know how the Lord has ministered to you as we go along here. You can get a hold of me on Instagram, on Gab uh, as well. Let me know because I love hearing what the Lord's doing. Subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss a thing. And please join me again next time as together we follow Jesus and listen for the Creator's calling. Bye until next time.